0: Uh, We are in a series in Nehemiah, but I'm going to take a break from that today and next Sunday. I am told next Sunday is Mother's Day, and so I'm going to do something different for Mother's Day. Um, But this morning, I hope this will be helpful. Nike owns the lion's share of the North American sports shoe business. Most people have seen the Nike logo, known as the Swoosh and the words, just do it. That slogan, just do it, was coined in 1988 at an advertisement campaign meeting. Dan Whedon was the founder of the advertising agency, (coughs) called on to create a Nike slogan, and he is the one that suggested, just do it. It's interesting that phrase was adopted from a most unusual and morbid source. Some of us remember in 1976, a convicted felon named Gary Gilmore was sentenced to death in Utah after murdering a gas station employee and a motel clerk, and there was no apparent motive in those murders. His defense team tried to overturn that guilty verdict, but Gilmore was uncooperative and he insisted on being executed. He was strapped into a chair facing a firing squad. Just before the execution, Gilmore was asked if he had some last words. His response was, let's do it. That was a provocative statement from a disturbed person, but those words, do it, from that phrase resonated with Mr. Whedon, he changed that phrase from let's do it to just do it, and the Nike executives bought it. <coughs> On a personal basis, I do not purchase Nike products because of reasons we don't have enough time to get into this morning, Colin Kaepernick. Um, but um, <coughs> I'm so sorry, forgive me. Um, it's interesting, some 20 centuries earlier, Jesus essentially said the same thing as Nike in a parable found at the conclusion of his famous Sermon on the Mount. Remember the Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And this is a parable at the end of that sermon. Let me read it. Matthew seven, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, meaning his sermon was now finished, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This parable describes two different men that represent two separate categories of people. One man and his grouping are categorized as being wise. And the second man and his grouping are categorized as being foolish. All of us fit into one of those categories. We're considered wise or were considered foolish. Both men were builders. Both men built a house. Those men were each constructing an actual residence for themselves. It seems that both men built the same basic house, consisting of the same basic structure and same materials, and it would seem both men built in the same general geographical region, so that one builder didn't have an advantage over the other one. In this parable... Each man's house represented his life, his actual life, meaning his entire existence on this earth. That was the essence of this house. These men built houses, and then there was just one difference between them. The difference between those houses was in the foundations. The basic difference between those men was the foundation those men used to construct their houses on. The wise man built his house on a rock, and the foolish man built his house on the sand. The Greek word translated as rock, as in the rock foundation from verse 24, is the word Petra. Petra, some of us who've been around the faith might remember in 1972 a Christian rock band was formed called Petra. That group disbanded in 2006, but continues to do reunion concerts from time to time. It was an extremely popular group and the first Christian band to have its memorabilia included in the hard rock cafe chain. I found that interesting. The Greek word petra doesn't mean a stone or even a larger boulder. That word petra means a large expanse of bedrock. This is bedrock. And that bedrock is solid, stable, and unmovable. This is an example of a house built on a rock near the water. This is a house built on and in, it would seem, a rock. And then this is a house built on an extreme rock. How does someone get his car up there? Or better still, how does someone get himself up there? There has to be a helicopter pad. That's craziness. A sand foundation is something altogether different from a rock foundation in contrast to rock. Sand is loose, movable, shifting, and extremely unstable. This is a picture of a house. That's a phenomenal house, modern architecture, but it's built right on the beach, right next to the water, not smart. This is another house built on sand. Um, I, want, I just wanted us to have a visual of these different foundations. This is a well-known parable from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, but it is sometimes misunderstood. Now, I need to interject that we still now even now use the word "rock" in a figurative sense. I've heard I've heard different mates mention "she's my rock" or "he's my rock," meaning. This person is the one they depend on, can count on, to give them strength, and that's all good. So we use rock in a figurative sense, and that's how it's used here. Let me explain, though, how some people misunderstand this. Some people interpret this parable to teach that this rock or stone foundation represents God or represents his son Jesus. Notice Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 62, 62, 1 and 2. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him, God, (coughs) comes my salvation. Verse 2. He, God, only is my rock and my salvation. According to these verses, God himself, as a singular being that exists in a triune form, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, though as a singular being, is being called a rock. And then to be more specific, God's Son, Jesus, is also called a figurative rock or stone. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For no other foundation, that is a stone foundation, can anyone lay than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. Acts 4 and verse 11. This meaning Jesus from the preceding verse, this Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you builders. Those builders were the, the Jewish nation itself. The Jewish people as a whole rejected him, which has become the chief cornerstone. So Jesus is considered the chief cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first and principal stone set in the construction of a building's foundation. It forms the base And corner, thus cornerstone, corner of a structure joining two walls. Most often the cornerstone (laughs) is the largest and most carefully constructed stone in a structure's foundation. All other stones are set in reference to and are aligned to the cornerstone because it is the most important stone. Jesus being The cornerstone means he is foundational to the spiritual construction of the church. So both God himself and his son Jesus are described as a figurative rock. And that's the reason some commentators teach that this rock the wise man built his house on represented Jesus. Um, As children in Sunday school, I don't know if it happens now, But as a child, I remember we would sing a song to that effect. It had some cool hand motions that I can't remember. And probably if I did, wouldn't be coordinated enough to pull them off. But that song included the words, So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a limited sense, that is true. Our entire existence should be built on Jesus. Some people... Some people's house is built on entertainment, or built on a career or hobbies, or built on friends uh, and other people' associations, but there is no better foundation to build someone's house hyphen life on than Jesus. This is not an exaggeration. I have met one-on-one, uh, up close and personal, thousands of professing Christians. Not one of them, not one, has ever admitted to me regretting that decision to receive Jesus. No one has ever done that. But the one regret I have heard from them most often is a regret in waiting so long to become a Christian. Numbers of them have said, I wish I hadn't waited. So we are to build ourselves on Jesus, but... I believe there is more to this figurative rock than that. I believe it's found in the text. Let me reread verse 24. Jesus said, "Therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine, pause there for a moment. Don't misunderstand this. These sayings of mine, Jesus has mentioned, are more more than just the words in red print. This is a red letter edition of the Bible. Um, And the words that are found in the text that are painted in red or printed in red are words that Jesus actually spoke from his time on this earth. This is from Matthew 23. This is where Jesus confronted the Pharisees. It's a pretty brutal passage. Uh, He ripped into them good. Notice all the red, all that red print. Um, the different colored print, red, differentiates Jesus' actual words from other words that are found throughout the biblical text. And those red-lettered words from Jesus are primarily recorded in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is one exception to that. There's one more verse printed in red found outside the Gospels, Acts 20, verse 35, also quotes Jesus actual words Paul there made the statement quote remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said now what he said here is not found in the gospels but he did say it because Paul said he said it remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive that is something I wish more people understood It is blessed, a blessed thing to be able to give. Um, I am consistent, and oftentimes I believe a generous giver. Um, I am not as good a receiver. I never have been. Someone said people fall into two categories. They're givers and takers. I'm a giver. I don't take well. I have said no to gifts. I have said no to gifts of some substantial uh, amounts in the thousands of dollars, and I declined them, in part because I know I don't deserve them, and so I feel uncomfortable accepting them. Until some time ago, someone tried to give me a generous financial gift. There was no reason for it. He just, out of the goodness of his heart, wanted to do this for us, and I respectfully declined. And this person... um, he, he didn't let it go, he stood there, and then he reminded me um, that Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive. He said, Pastor, do you understand that in rejecting this gift from me, that you are robbing me of a blessing? Is that what you want to do? I had never considered receiving from that perspective. So I learned a lesson from that gentleman And I am announcing this morning that I am now open to receiving financial gifts of all amounts. Just make out the check to Larry Webb and it's all good. Just... Okay, I'm jesting. Sort of. Um, But since this man, Jesus, is also God... He is the God-man, God incarnate, meaning God in human form. And since God is the ultimate author of all Scripture, these sayings of mine mentioned here can also mean the entirety of Scripture. Uh, these sayings of mine, Jesus mentioned, mean not only just the words printed in red, but mean Scripture as a whole. So verse 24 could read, Therefore whoever hears from Scripture and does what Scripture says, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now don't miss this. The rock foundation in this parable is more than just Jesus. The rock foundation in this parable represents someone who hears what Scripture has said and then does what Scripture has instructed him to do. The rock foundation represents someone who hears what Scripture has said and then does what Scripture has instructed him to do. In one word, that's called obedience. Obedience. Then verse 26 could read, But everyone who hears from Scripture and does not do what Scripture says will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So the sand foundation in this parable represents someone that hears what Scripture has said and then doesn't, doesn't do what Scripture has instructed him to do. He hears the same Scripture as the wise man that built his house on a rock, but he doesn't do what he has heard. He ignores it. In one word, that's called disobedience. Disobedience. (coughs) For those who have been in our discipleship class, this sounds familiar. Notice the definition. Obedience is defined as doing what we are told to do, doing it when we are told to do it, doing it the best it should be done, and doing it with the right heart attitude. Every parent should memorize that definition because it's applicable to raising children. Obedience is defined as doing what we are told to do, doing it when we are told to do it, doing it the best it should be done. Notice, the best it should be done, not necessarily the best it could be done because sometimes the best it could be done is not required, it would be a wasteful use of time. And then doing it with the right heart attitude. Now please understand that doing what we are told to do later than we were told to do it is procrastinated obedience, and procrastinated obedience is still disobedience. And doing less than we were told to do is partial obedience, and partial obedience is still disobedience. And understand that someone's attitude is essential to obedience. I read about a first grade school teacher that asked one of her students named Johnny to sit down The problem was, as I'm sure happens often among first-grade boys, the problem was Johnny didn't want to sit down, and he told the teacher that. She insisted that he sit down, though, and he stubbornly refused. Frustrated, she said, Johnny, if you don't sit down, I'm going to sit you down. Johnny still wouldn't sit down, strong-willed Johnny, And so she walked over, she picked him up and sat him down. Now, I don't even know if that's permissible now in public school, which is ridiculous. But she sat him down. So Johnny sat there with his lips puckered up and his face still reddened from anger. And he said to himself, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still standing up on the inside. (laughs) That's not true obedience. Because although he was made to conform to the teacher's demand to sit down, he still had a bad attitude. That's not obedience. The entire Christian experience, once someone has received Christ, the entire Christian experience can be summed up in three words, hear and do. It's so simple, hear and do. James also describes someone that hears and then doesn't do. James one, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearers and not doers are self-deceived people. These people are under the erroneous impression that hearing from Scripture is enough. Sitting through sermon after sermon after sermon, listening to teaching on different apps and podcasts, reading Christian literature in addition to consistent personal Bible reading, All of that is the same as hearing the word. And these people feel that's all that's required from them. I call these people spiritual Rolades. Rolades are an anti-acid medication that claims to consume 47 times its own weight in excess stomach acid. Some Christians are spiritual Rolades because these people consume 47 times their own weight in excess biblical knowledge. Excess biblical knowledge is defined as biblical knowledge that we accumulate but then don't intend to practice. Spiritual roleades aids are hearers and not doers. Notice verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Verse 24. For he observes himself then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. A non-doing Christian, someone that just hears and doesn't do, is analogous to someone that sees himself in a mirror, <coughs> which I can actually do. Over in the back, we have a, a one-way mirror, a glass over that cry room, and um, I try not to look at that too much, it's kind of depressing, but, um, <laughs> but someone that sees himself in a mirror, and he's an absolute total mess. He resembles something the cat drug in. And cats can drag in some pretty nasty stuff. He stares at his embarrassing self in that mirror and then turns around and completely forgets that his face has serious problems. He has deceived himself into believing his face was going to improve on its own. Question. Is there a woman, a female, They can actually sit down in front of a mirror, see in that mirror a reflection of her unprepared, just got out of bed face, stare at herself in that condition, and then get up and completely ignore the image she has just seen in that mirror. People get serious. That doesn't happen 100% of the time. The average woman who doesn't like what she sees in the mirror is going to pull open a drawer full of paint and putty and start correcting the problem. And as men, we appreciate that. Thank God for cosmetics. Seriously. In a similar sense, if we sit through a service and if we aren't falling asleep, which is kind of difficult to do here, As we listen to a sermon, if it is a biblical presentation, and the unfortunate fact is more and more sermons aren't, if it is though thoroughly biblical, then through that medium of preaching, we are in effect seeing ourselves in a spiritual mirror. Our spiritual faces are reflected off the pages of scripture. The Holy Spirit uses the preached word like a mirror and reveals the less than desirable condition of our spiritual countenance, and exposes our facial mess. That's the reason if the Bible is preached in power, and through that preaching the Holy Spirit is operating at maximum efficiency, there's going to be conviction. It concerns me that you can visit churches across this nation, you can sit through the entire service, you can walk out, and you will have never felt even a slight tinge of conviction from the Spirit. There is literally no conviction about a life change, about something in you that is wrong that should be rectified, about something that you're not doing that you should be doing. There's no conviction. But if the Bible is preached in power, and the Holy Spirit is operative, there's going to be conviction. And that conviction should result in more oh mes than amen's, because we're being exposed. If, though, after seeing ourselves in that spiritual mirror, instead of addressing our obvious problems, instead of confessing our sin, instead of turning from our sin, in the language of this word picture, instead of fixing our faces, instead we get up from that service, we go home and we forget about the mess our spiritual face is still in. If we do that, and we completely ignore what we've seen in the biblical mirror, then two things are true about us. One, we are self-deceived. We are self-deceived per James 1, 22 we just read. Second, we are foolish. Foolish per the parable of the wise and foolish man. Our text from Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27. People, that is so inconsistent of us. Think through this, salvation is accepting Jesus as our savior. Savior means forgiver. We want him to be our forgiver because we have a serious sin problem. Accepting Jesus as our savior and acknowledging Jesus as our Lord. Lord meaning master, ruler, and leader. So if Jesus as a Christian is Lord over us, if he is our ultimate master, ruler, and leader, then why is it that we ignore his instructions? Jesus actually asked that same question. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus said, And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not the things which I say? Why do we hear Jesus' instructions and then we turn around and ignore them? We don't do them. Let me cite some examples, some random examples of that. Um, Consider personal relations. If we've been offended, and being offended is a common problem, we have all been offended, and I'm sure we have all offended. Um, If we have been offended, we have two biblical options. Options one, we can let love cover that offense, per 1 Peter 4, verse 8. We can let love cover that offense, meaning we just forgive that offense. Now... There are two basic classifications of forgiveness that we can extend towards someone that has offended us. Two basic classifications we can extend towards someone that has offended us. Those classifications are positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. Notice, positional forgiveness transpires between ourselves and God. Positional forgiveness transpires, it is a vertical thing between ourselves and God. We tell God we have chosen to forgive the one that offended us. And we do that so that resentment and bitterness doesn't build up inside us. People, bitterness is stupid and moronic. Bitterness towards someone is the same as drinking poison ourselves and then hoping it kills the person we're bitter towards. Not understanding that our bitterness has no ill effect on that person at all. Bitterness hurts us, not them. Through positional forgiveness, we assume a position of forgiveness toward that person. Meaning we act, if we're around them, we act as though that offense never happened. I do not have bitterness in my heart. I refuse to have bitterness in my heart. Yes, I have been offended, I've been slandered, I've been libeled. Uh, There are people who literally hate me, but I absolutely am not bitter toward any of them because it's so counterproductive and destructive. Second, there's transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness transpires between ourselves and the offender. Notice, after the offender asks to be forgiven. This is horizontal forgiveness transpiring between ourselves and the one that offended us after the offender asks to be forgiven. Forgiveness, in a transactional sense, cannot transpire between us until the offender admits to his offense and then seeks forgiveness from us. Transactional forgiveness is primarily contingent on the offender, and that means sometimes that never happens. Some people never acknowledge wrongdoing, never admit to sin, never admit to an offense, never, never seek forgiveness from the one they offended but that is one option, to let love cover something. Second option, we can confront the offender in love. Per Matthew 18, verse 15, we can confront the offender in love. We have the prerogative of confronting the offending person hoping that he or she will admit to wrongdoing and desire to be forgiven. Now, these are our only two available options. If we have been offended, our options are cover or confront. We either let love cover that offense and move on and act as though that offense hadn't happened or we confront the person that offended us. From a personal perspective, 99.9% of the time, I cover the offense and I forgive the offending person in a positional sense. I cannot remember the last time I confronted someone about a personal offense committed against me. I can't remember that. If the offense affects just me, I almost never, never confront. If the offense could affect others or endanger others, then I would consider confronting. The point is, though, I cannot count the Christians that refuse to use the biblical procedure we just mentioned in order to resolve interpersonal conflict. God said cover or confront. Cover, in love, an offense, or confront, in love, that person that offended us. And countless Christians do neither. The most common excuse is, but it wouldn't do any good to confront him. He's incorrigible. He isn't going to be receptive to a confrontation. He will never change. He is who he is, and that's it. If that's the case, there's a biblical prescription on that, per Matthew 18, verses 16 and 17, meaning there are additional steps we can take in the confrontation process. But understand something. How someone responds to us is on them we are not responsible to God for their reaction to us. We are responsible to do what God told us to do. And then we leave their reaction to our action up to God. If the offender is contrite and apologetic and wants forgiveness from us, that's fantastic. That is the ultimate best case situation. If though the offender is defensive and argumentative and is unconvinced he is the wrongdoer, then that's on him. Even though we cannot forgive that person in a transactional sense because of his stubbornness and pride, he isn't going to admit to his wrong and offense and seek to be forgiven, so we can't forgive him in that sense, but we can still forgive him in a positional sense so that bitterness and resentment doesn't build up in us and we can move on and we act as though the offense didn't happen. But I'm finding, and this is disturbing, some people refuse to even forgive someone in a positional sense. And the illogical argument used is, Pastor, you don't understand. You don't know what this person did to me. This is horrific. This is incredible. Nothing like this has ever happened to you. You don't know what that person did to me. And I confess to them, no, I don't. I don't know all that that offender did to you. But I do know. I do know what you did to Jesus. Your sins nailed him to the cross. And he forgave you. Think about it. Ephesians 4 verse 32. And be kind to one another. We need to work on that. Tenderhearted. We need to work on that. Forgiving one another, notice, forgiving one another even as God in Christ forgave you. Don't miss this. That means Christians are to be the most forgiving because we have been the most forgiven. Christ has forgiven us. We have experienced the ultimate forgiveness of past, present, and future sins. Christ has forgiven us, so we are then to forgive others that commit sin against us. Christians are to be the most forgiving people on earth because we have been the most forgiven people on earth. There is not a people problem that couldn't be resolved if we... The parties involved would just do what the scripture has instructed us to do. It's that simple. Another example where some people are building their house on a big sand pile Christian Mingle is a dating site for Christian singles. I'm so grateful I don't have to date. Whoa. Uh, and by the way, all these dating sites, most of the people on there, do not tell the truth. Now, I don't know from personal experience, but from those that I've spoken to about it, and it is true. Um, but it's a Christian dating site for Christian singles. The organization did a recent questionnaire and asked each participant on that site, ranging from ages 18 to 59, that's a large demographic range, Ask each participant if he or she would be open to having sexual relations before marriage. Sixty-three percent of those supposed Christian respondents said yes. Sixty-three percent. But what is Scripture's answer to that question? Just one biblical reference. There are more. Just one. Enough time for one. First Corinthians six eighteen. Three words. Flee sexual immorality. From a biblical perspective, sexual relations are permissible inside certain boundaries. And those boundaries are monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Monogamous, meaning one mate. Heterosexual, male and female, not same gender. And then marriage, not cohabitation. Monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Inside those boundaries, sexual relations are fantastic and honoring to God. And God is pleased because he gave us the sexual union as a gift. But sexual relations outside those boundaries are considered immoral, and that includes premarital sexual relations. So 1 Corinthians 6.18 is emphatic that we are not to experience sexual relations before marriage. The New Living Translation reads, run from sexual sin. It's inconceivable to me that 63% of those Christian mingle respondents then answered yes to sexual relations before marriage, it's inconceivable to me that they weren't aware of that moral standard. No, the problem isn't ignorance. The problem is in action. The problem is in not doing what we have been instructed to do. Now, that being said, I do believe ignorance is a serious problem in the Western church. The average Christian doesn't know what he believes and doesn't have a clue as to why he believes in, and as a result, he isn't discerning. He is deceived easily. He gets fooled easily and caught up in false teaching. Although ignorance is a serious problem, the bigger problem is obedience. The average Christian has probably been educated past his commitment to obedience. (laughs) He still knows more than he's willing to do. Understand it doesn't matter how much we know if we aren't acting on what we know. Most people know we have three sons, three adult sons, ages 45, 42, and 37. And uh, those numbers remind me that I am getting old. Um, And I'm certain if you've ever had children and are now adults, I'm certain that each of our adult sons would be in absolute denial about this because we have learned adult children are sometimes historical revisionists and have selective memories of what happened to them at home. I cannot count the times I would tell one of them to do something that I had earlier told them to do multiple times and it still hadn't been done. Has that ever happened at your house? So I tell them to do something. I told them half a dozen times earlier, and it still hadn't be done. And I tell them, and the response would be, and I don't know how they each learned the same response. The response would be, I know, Dad, I know. I know, Dad, I know. And my rebuttal would be, I know that you know, but what are you doing about it? obedience is more than knowledge and the fact we know more just means we are then responsible to do more in this text in this parable we see incredible contrasts between those that practice obedience and those that are disobedient and both builders hear God's word and how both builders respond to those instructions though are complete opposites let me cite one more example where some don't practice this doctrine of doing. The fifth book of the New Testament is Acts. Acts is a historical book, and that book contains the historical record of the first churches beginning at Jerusalem, and then the increasing multiplication of churches expanding from that Jerusalem congregation, stretching on into Europe. And reading through that historical account, it's interesting to see how that those earliest Christians were baptized in water, sometimes just minutes after their conversion to Jesus Christ. I mean, it was almost immediate. Um, These people received Christ and are baptized. Uh, The only Christian mentioned in the entire New Testament that wasn't baptized was the thief on the cross. Jesus died between two common criminals, also being crucified, one on either side of him, One of those men ridiculed him and rejected him. And the other criminal came to his senses. He repented of his sin, and he received Jesus. That was a true deathbed conversion. Because of his salvific decision, Jesus promised him paradise that day. He would die that day, and Jesus promised he would go to paradise because he had received Jesus. But that anonymous criminal was at that moment in the process of being suffocated on a cross, People don't, maybe aren't aware of that crucifixion victims would die from suffocation, not from bleeding out. It was a horrific, horrific, torturous death. He had a legitimate excuse. It wasn't that he resisted being baptized. It was that he couldn't be baptized because he was being executed. No one in this room has even a close facsimile of that same excuse. If at a specific moment in time, space, history, you have believed from your heart on Jesus, if you have received Jesus into your life, then you should now be baptized in water through immersion as an object lesson illustrating the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Scripture calls us to be baptized in order to announce in public our commitment to Jesus. For a Christian to refuse baptism is absolute, unadulterated disobedience. To procrastinate on baptism, as in pastor, now don't misunderstand me, I, I intend to be baptized at some point, I'm just not there, I, you know, I want to wait some more, I hear that often. Remember, procrastination is also disobedience. And remember, disobedience is the same as constructing our house-life on a sand foundation. And according to Jesus, only a foolish man does that. Ba Baracus from the A team, better known as Mr. T, said, "I pity the fool." So don't be a fool. Get baptized. I have baptized someone still in a wheelchair, wheelchair and all. I have baptized a man weighing 425 pounds in a baptism tub, one half the size of ours. Scariest baptism ever. He almost drowned me. I have baptized people in their 90s. I have baptized people that were literally terrified to be baptized because they were in front of people. And people were looking at them and that just, just totally almost... Paralyzed them. They were so scared. But those same people afterwards were ecstatic about being baptized. People don't regret being baptized. We need to stop making excuses and get baptized. Just do it. This doctrine of doing is so applicable. I heard about a minister who dreaded pastoral counseling. And I might add, I don't know any pastor who enjoys pastoral counseling. If he does, he needs counseling himself. Um, But this guy, we just want to get it over with. He was not good. So, someone troubled would make an appointment, come to see him, sit down, and the counseling session would consist of him asking this troubled person three questions. First, what exactly is the problem? Second, what does the Bible say about that problem? And third, why are we still talking? Now, that is a super simplistic approach to counseling, as most problems are much, much more complicated than that. But the inference of his approach is that if the Bible addresses, specifically addresses someone's problem, then the solution is to do what the Bible instructs someone to do about that problem. And so there's no need to continue the conversation. Just do it. And I I have been frustrated with people because I meet with them. I tell them what they should do. They go out and don't do it, and they want to come back and see me. It's frustrating. The wise man built his house on a rock foundation, meaning that he heard and understood God's instructions, and then he did them. The foolish man built his house on shifting sand, meaning he heard and understood God's instructions, and then he neglected them, ignored them, or rejected them. He did nothing. Now notice the end result of both builders. Both men faced serious storms. These are figurative storms. Those storms consisted of torrential rain and wind and flooding. In a figurative sense, we all understand that storms come. It's not if storms come to us, but when storms come to us. One of our more recent congregants is Sandy Gertner, married to Ken. Both Ken and Sandy are very sincere and committed Christians. Um, Five months ago, Sandy seemed to be in good health, no problems, everything was fine. This morning, she's at the Huntsman Cancer Clinic or Center in Salt Lake City. Um, The doctors have determined she has a large mass on her pancreas. The doctors have determined that she has a rare, inoperable, and extremely aggressive form of incurable cancer. No one has said just how much time she has left, but it's short because the prognosis is not good. In fact, one of our men, Derek Rickford, who is close to uh, her family, to her, family, her sons in particular, uh, left yesterday and drove his RV there so he could pick her up and bring her back here so she could lay down and be somewhat comfortable in coming back, the 500-mile drive it would be, texted this morning and said she is in extreme pain and she is not being released and she might not be released. She may go to heaven from that cancer center, we don't know. But that was a complete, unexpected and terrible, terrible storm. A storm could be an insurmountable financial crisis a storm could be a car accident that results in someone suffering severe injuries and permanent disabilities. Or worse than that, a storm could be someone close to us that dies unexpectedly. And on and on and on. Life consists of storm after storm after storm after storm. But notice that this wise man's house survived those storms. Verse 25. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall. Why didn't that house collapse during the storm? For it was founded on the rock. And what is the rock foundation? It is hearing what God has said and doing what God has said. It is that simple. This is a house built on a rock foundation. Those are pretty gnarly waves. (laughs) Notice the house is surviving the storm. This is another house. This happens to be a lighthouse. That's craziness, the water. Still the lighthouse survived that storm. Then verse 27 tells us that the foolish man's house didn't survive that storm. Verse 27, and the rain descended. The floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its This is a house built on a sand foundation that will have to be demolished. This is another house built on a sand foundation. It did not survive the storm. Storms are inevitable, and we don't have a chance against them if all we have holding us up is an unstable sand foundation. We need a commitment to both hearing and doing so that our house, hyphen life, is being built on a solid, strong, secure rock foundation. Vernon Brewer is literally, and this is not an exaggeration, the first graduate of Liberty University. I met him in 1978. In 1991, he founded World Help which is a international Christian humanitarian organization. An amazing organization in dozens and dozens of countries. I hold Vernon in high, high respect. It's been some time since we have been together, but I remember him speaking at one of our previous congregations, and he shared how he had just made a recent visit to Africa, not South Africa, but one of the other countries. I just can't remember which one. At the location where he and his team were ministering, There was a crusade service that was scheduled to start at 7:30 each night. 7:30. Vernon said at 5:30, two hours prior, more than 600 people would come to this open-air tabernacle. Literally, as he described it, not much larger than this room. Imagine 600 people crammed into this room. those dear African brothers and sisters would cram themselves into that, into that tabernacle and would sit on hard benches that had no back support. The people were packed in there like sardines, and to complicate matters, the temperature would sometimes exceed 120 degrees. Those more than 600 African Christians would then pray for two solid hours before the crusade service would start. Two solid hours. Vernon said it was amazing to both see and hear these people pray. Those prayer requests were lifted up to God as one gigantic chorus as the people cried out to God from their hearts. Vernon then said that after all the praying, those people in mass would all stand together and sing this song in preparation for the service. This song said in English, I am ready to obey your word. I am ready to obey your word. I am ready to obey the written word of God. I am ready to obey the written word of God. And then after that, the service would start. Vernon said those people had such a passionate love for Jesus, they literally couldn't wait to do what he wanted them to do. His parting words, his final comments to those Christian people in Africa were these. Listen carefully. These were his last words to them. All my life, I've prayed for God to raise up missionaries from the United States to send to Africa. Now I'm going home, and I'm going to pray that God would raise up missionaries in Africa to send to the United States. Would that God would give us people, those African people, those brothers and sisters there who are committed to both hearing and doing, that whenever and wherever God speaks to us from his word, that whatever God said to do, we would fall on our knees and our faces in submission to him and say, God, I promise I will do all that you have requested from me. Question, we're each builders, we're each building a house, we're constructing a house, our life on a foundation. That foundation could be rock or could be sand. If it's rock, you're a wise builder. If it's sand, it's a fooli- you're a foolish builder. So which is it? Are you wise or are you foolish? You don't have to answer me now, because the storm will tell us. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father, you've heard my attempt to teach this parable. (coughs) Um, So simple, really. We're building a house on a foundation. Is it rock or sand? If we hear and then do what you have instructed us to do, then it's rock. If we hear what you would like for us to do and we ignore that, then it's sand. And if it's sand, we are not prepared for the storms of life. Father, I pray that everyone in this room that is a Christian would be determined from this point on to build only on the rock, hearing and then doing. If there is anyone in this room, though, that does not know you through your son Jesus, they have never experienced salvation in him, God, I pray you will convict them, make them literally miserable until they come to the point where they're willing to say, yes, I want Jesus more than anything. I would pray for that person even today to speak to me after the service so we can set up an appointment and I can share with them. I can pray with them to receive Christ. I do want to pray for Sandy Gertner this morning. I'm so grateful she knows you. You are her rock. You are her hope. I so pray, God, the doctors can manage this praying. I I pray that she can still come home so she can finish her time here on this earth among her family and friends. I just pray that will happen this week. God, give her the grace she needs to endure this incredibly traumatic storm. And I pray the same for her husband, Ken, and all of their children and grandchildren and all the many people who love her so we commit her to you. God, storms come. We know that. (laughs) Help us to prepare ourselves for them. And that's how we do it. We hear, and then we do. Help us never to forget that. I pray in the special name of your son, Jesus. Amen.